Right. Well, this morning, as I uh, just prayed, and as many of you are aware, we are going through the book of Mark. Uh, many of you who went to the Sight and Sound show of Jesus here a few days ago commented on how much our sermon series kind of corresponded with some of the things that were happening in the show, um, and some people complimented me on that. Here's the deal. It's all about this, the Bible. Mark has outlined Jesus' life, so has the other Gospels. And of course, any time that then you're looking at the same uh, text, the same Bible, you're going to see very, a lot of similarities. And we're going to continue to look at the life of Jesus. And I hope that as we look at the book of Mark, it is not just a, an academic exercise in which we look at Jesus and try to figure out who Jesus was as a historical figure, as a, even as... God, even as Savior, that we don't just look at this as history, although it is truth and it is history, it has much to say about how we live now. And as we continue to look through the book of Mark, and it was kind of just a reminder, even as we watched that show, if you were with us, that it's not just a dry, boring story in the pages of an old book, but the life of Jesus has power and can transform. He transformed the lives of those he touched when he was on the earth, and he has that power still to transform lives now. And so as we continue to go through Mark this morning, and we're going to look at chapter 11, verse 12, through chapter 12, verse 12, we're going to see a part of Jesus that many times we don't like to see, but it is a truth of Jesus that we must see and we must understand, and that is that Jesus yes, as a loving Savior that saves people from their sins and the very essence of the fact that He loves means He must hate something. And the very essence that He's saving us from something is also going to show that there is something that condemns people and that is sin. And we're going to see that Jesus must confront and must condemn sin because He wouldn't be God if He didn't. He loves because He hates sin. And as we see today, we're going to see a couple different situations, specifically around the people of Israel, around the nation of Israel and their leadership. And we're going to see what Jesus says and does that will remind us of where they were and also where it so easily we could go if we're not careful in how we live. And so with all that being said, let's review. For those of you who haven't been with us, you'll see that I changed the review format a little bit. We're into a paragraph now. And we'll see if we can get this. We're going to read this paragraph, fill in the blanks as we go. Throughout Mark, we see Jesus is the suffering servant king who is truly God and truly man. Jesus not only taught this, but demonstrated it through parables and miracles. This led to opposition and pressure from those around him as some followed while others rejected him. Jesus' ministry served all people, And during his ministry, he slowly reveals his identity to his followers and tells them that his mission is to suffer and to die. His followers should expect the same and live a life of self-sacrifice. That's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. And now at the halfway point of Mark, we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem and showing everyone that he indeed is the Messiah. We looked at the fact last week that Jesus marches into Jerusalem, no question, He's the Messiah. People are praising Him as the Messiah and He does not silence them because it is time now. His time has come. A little less than a week later from what we see Jesus walking into Jerusalem, we will see Jesus 
giving his life as a sacrifice for sin to save those who so desperately needed saving. But we see even in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the exhibition of Jesus as king, Jesus gives us a glimpse into condemnation to those who refuse to believe. Now many of you who know John 3 says the Son did not come into the world to condemn the world. Okay? This, Jesus came into the world to save the world that is already condemned. But today we're going to see that there is a group that is going to be judged and condemned for their lack of faith in the Messiah. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into the same traps they do. And so we're going to see some things this morning. We're going to look at chapter 11, as I said, verse 12, all the way through 12.12. And we're going to look at this. We're not going to be able to take it apart and look at every little piece. This section alone could take us a month to go through. But we're going to give an overview and we're going to see what Jesus is showing about the seriousness of the sin of Israel. So let's start by reading as we go to Mark chapter 11. This is on the heels of the triumphal entry. He just entered Jerusalem. People were shouting, Hosanna. So remember, he, after he marches in, he goes into uh, the temple, leaves to go to Bethany for the night, comes back to the temple the next day. Last week, we talked about him cleansing the temple and how that was a, a sign of uh, the fact that he indeed is the Messiah and he had the authority to do those things in the temple. And we'll, we're going to talk about that again today in a different context. We're going to see how this cleansing of the temple also points to something else. But on the way to the temple, this is where we start off as we get to Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. After he went to Jerusalem and now has been to Bethany and now is coming back to Jerusalem the next day, this is where we see Jesus and his disciples. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that... Uh, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? 
they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the, set, when the season came, he, set, he sent in a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, so they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our, in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that they had told, he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. There's a lot here to get to. We'll do our best to get through this today. We're going to see a couple things in this passage that Jesus judges or condemns. And we see here that the first thing is that Jesus condemns the fig tree. Jesus condemns the fig tree. We have the story of a fig tree here. Uh, we kind of skipped over it last week to get to the temple part. But now we're going to take some time to look at what happens here to the fig tree. Going to Jerusalem, Jesus curses this tree for not bearing fruit. He curses the tree for not bearing fruit. So Jesus is, is traveling along as we read in Scripture, says he's hungry. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that probably the night before he was praying all night and hadn't eaten. So he's hungry is there early in the morning going to Jerusalem. He sees this tree and it says it's a tree that's in leaf. He goes to it trying to find something to eat and there's nothing there. So he curses it. He, he says, nothing will ever grow from you again. No fruit will ever be had from you again. He immediately does it right then. Now, this seems, uh, <laughs> this is not Jesus throwing a temper tantrum because he was hungry and didn't get the food he wanted. This is not my kids when I tell them they can't go to the ice cream store. Okay, this is a different story. Jesus never does anything without purpose. And we're going to see today that this fig tree is going to be a symbol of even greater things that Jesus is trying to say. And right off the bat, though, a lot, I know one question I've had is, why is it fair for this tree to be cursed? Because what we're told is it wasn't the season for figs. So Jesus comes to a tree that wasn't in season, it doesn't have the fruit that it should, and then he decides to curse it. That doesn't make sense, it doesn't seem right. But if you understand, and I didn't until this week, until I did some study, if you understand a Middle Eastern uh, um, fig tree, it actually has two stages of bearing fruit. There's one stage that there's little tiny fruit that you can eat that a lot of pe people who would be traveling and would see wild fig trees would pick these and eat them. It was perfectly lawful to do that. And it was just this, a little snack, if you will. It wasn't the full fig. It wasn't the full fruit that you'd want from a tree, but it was enough to give you sustenance. It was enough to give you some, some food. And the thing is, a fig tree... Those little things, those little fruits, those little prefigs, if you will, came before the leaves. 
Now, why does this matter? Well, think about it. We were just told that this tree was in leaf. So it looked healthy. Because here's the thing. A, a Middle Eastern person at this time that was living in Israel, if they saw a fig tree with leaves, it would be assumed that if it has leaves, then it's a healthy tree, and therefore it'll have fruit. Jesus comes up to this tree that has uh, leaves, but it doesn't have the small figs it should have. You see, it has an appearance of being healthy, but it wasn't. Seeing it in leaf made it say, oh, it's a healthy tree, but it wasn't because it wasn't bearing the fruit that it was supposed to have. And here's the truth of the matter, and this was known by anybody who would know fig trees back then, that if there was, no, if there was none of that first fruit, that little fruit that was there to start, if that wasn't there, then the big fruit wasn't coming either. Like, if it wasn't going to bear the smaller fruit that was for snacking, it wasn't going to bear the bigger fruit that was for eating. It wasn't going to. So this tree was not doing what it was meant to do. And it was giving an illusion of being healthy and an illusion of being able to feed, and yet it wasn't. Jesus declares the tree dead and moves on. Kills a tree. This is a weird story. Okay, so we talk about Jesus killing a tree. What's the point? Give me some time. We're going to get to what the point is. Why is it so important that this tree is left for dead? And we'll talk about that in just a minute. The next day, indeed, we see the disciples. So we skip over the temple part. We'll get back to that because we already looked at that once. We'll look at it again. But after he he cleanses the temple, they're coming back through. And now they see the tree. And what Peter sees, he's like, oh, the the fig tree you cursed has withered. Uh, in other places, we see that it's actually withered up from the roots. Like, it is completely dead. There is no hope for this tree. This tree has given up its right to bear fruit, and it indeed is dead. But we find this weird thing. So the next day, the disciples discover the tree is dead, and the disciples are what? They're surprised. How much have they seen? They have seen Jesus literally raise people from the dead. And yet they are amazed and surprised that Jesus was able to kill a fig tree. Interesting, Jesus then uses this opportunity. The tree is withered up from the roots, it will not produce fruit, just as Jesus said, and yet the disciples did not believe it right off the bat. So Jesus uses the dead tree to talk about faith. Jesus uses this tree, this poor fig tree that was not bearing the fruit it should, that he cursed And it died to make a point. Remember, Jesus has purpose for everything he does. He doesn't just do random acts. He doesn't just throw temper tantrums and kill trees. There is a reason for this. And Jesus wants to show his disciples something about faith. And that's where he starts talking up, uh, talking and says, have faith in God. Then he talks about moving a mountain and casting it into the sea. Talks about prayer and what that looks like. And and there's some confusing things even in what Jesus says. And let's take a minute to look at some of those things. What Jesus is saying here is really quite uh, simple and yet profound. Jesus is using the tree and the doubt that the disciples had to say, you need to have faith that I can do the impossible. That I can do anything. That God can do the impossible. You've got to believe that God can do the impossible. As he talks about a mountain being thrown into the sea, this is a common Jewish metaphor that was used of the day. Anytime they wanted to talk about an impossible mission or an impossible task, they would 
they would call it a mountain. It's much like that we would have a mountain to climb. We might say that if there's something that is, just seems impossible and so big and so looming that we don't, we don't see a way to get over it. That is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying that that even can be moved. Whatever you feel is impossible, God can do. Now I want to reference this in all of Scripture. So then Jesus goes on and says, look, whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe that you have received it, it'll be yours. That is a verse that is here. Now that means there's a lot of people that have taken this verse, they pull it completely out of context of the rest of Scripture, and it becomes a name it and claim it thing. I want this, God give it to me. Oh, I believe I'm going to get it, so here it is. I want a million dollars, I'm a millionaire. I want this, I want that. Jesus, give it to me. I believe that you'll give it to me. But that goes against the very fabric of what prayer is about. Prayer is about trust in God and trust in His will. We just sang a bunch of songs about oceans that that seem to overtake us and storms that may overtake us. And listen, Jesus is not promising here that any want and desire that we have, we can just pray for it. And He's like, this magic genie that says you have unlimited wishes. That is not what Jesus is saying. We need to keep this in context. He's talking about faith. And he's trying to make a point to the disciples that, and here's what I would, if I had to sum it all up, he's trying to say to the disciples, look, you've got to believe that God can. That doesn't mean he always will. We see throughout scripture that God has a specific plan and his will will go forward and man cannot stop that and man cannot change that. That is truth of scripture. And so a real prayer life is one that is so in tune with God that we know what he's doing and we pray for his will. Think about Jesus and when he he gives the, the Lord's prayer. Notice that in the Lord's prayer there is one point in which he asks for daily needs, daily bread. But out of the rest... He prays, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's part of the Lord's prayer, as we would call it from Matthew chapter 6. And so that, that is what Jesus, when he's asked how do we pray, that's how we pray. He doesn't say in there, ask for whatever you want and you can get it. That's selfish motivation. That's not what prayer is all about. Prayer is about faith and saying that God can do everything and anything that he wants to do. But the key part is the fact that he has to will it. But even to us, what seems like a mountain can be moved. Even a mountain to us can be thrown into the sea. Jesus can. God can. It doesn't always mean He will, but we can trust and know that He is going to do what is best. Another great example of this, and we won't have time to go there, but if you remember Jesus, and we'll get to this as we go through Mark, but Jesus, when He's in the garden the night before Uh, The night before he gives his life, before they come and arrest him, he's praying in the garden. If you remember what he says to the Father, he says, if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus says that because, listen, he is praying for what his flesh might want, but he understands that God has a better and bigger and more important plan. And that is what he's going to stick with. So when we pray, we cannot take this passage to say, that is, we, if we believe it, it's ours. But we can take this passage to say very, very simply that if we truly trust God and we truly trust His will, then we will be praying for what He wants us to be praying for. And as we do that, He will do impossible things. 
But here's the truth of the matter. We're so afraid to, to, to get too close to the name it and claim it thing that we, we decide that uh, we don't want to burden God with what we feel like is impossible. We need to be praying. We need to be trusting. We need to have faith. In just a minute, we're going to see the opposite of faith. We're going to see the leaders of Israel who don't have any faith or any trust in God, but they try to do anything and everything on their own. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to have faith in God to do the impossible. Do we really have that faith? I would say many of us at times truly don't because we don't understand that God truly can do anything and everything he wants to do. But we need to trust him. But there's a piece here that Jesus throws in as he's talking about all this. He also says, asking for God's will, asking for his will to be done but not living by it, doesn't make any sense. You see, he goes on and he says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Listen, Jesus wants it to be very clear that trusting in God is more than just words. Trusting in God is the way we live. And forgiveness is one of the hardest things for a human to do in their flesh. Because we want to hold on to any wrong, any sin that's been cast against us, hold it on, hold on to it, and hold people to have to be punished by us. That is the whole point of unforgiveness. And so Jesus says, look, if you're praying for God's will, if you're praying for unity, you're praying for love, you're praying for the world to be changed, and yet you won't live like it, then it doesn't do any good. It's very simple, and we see this throughout Scripture. The book of James is very clear on this. Other places, 1 John talks about, listen, our faith is more than just words, it's through, it's through deeds, it's through action. And Jesus is saying the exact same thing. Don't just pray and, and say we trust God, but trust Him with our lives and in the way we live. This is the lesson He's trying to teach His disciples. We need to move on for the sake of time. Like I said, we could talk about prayer forever. And I would encourage each and every one of you to do your own personal study on prayer throughout the whole scripture. Don't just take a few passages out of context. Take prayer passages in context, compare them through scripture. You will see a piece and you will see a picture of what prayer is meant to be. And that is to trust God and call upon him to do his will. But as we move on, obviously, as we said, Jesus didn't just throw a temper tantrum for the, and curse an innocent tree for no reason. Jesus had a purpose for doing things, and the condemnation of the fig tree is no different. Now, a study throughout the Old Testament, which we won't have time to do today, will show that the fig tree has been used many times to symbolize judgment on the nation of Israel. So if you're taking notes, here's the passages you're going to want to read to, to back this up. Some passages that point to Israel being judged like the fig tree are Jeremiah 8.13, Jeremiah 29.17, Hosea 9.10-16, Joel 1.7, and Micah 7.1-6. I'll say those one more time. Jeremiah 8.13, Jeremiah 29.17, Hosea 9.10-16, Joel 1, 7, and Micah 7, 1 through 6. Once again, I would encourage you to take those verses and see that indeed in the Old Testament that the fig tree many times is used in the symbolism of the judgment of Israel, that it would have no fruit, and now Jesus is doing this. And it's obvious that there's a connection here. So Jesus is making a point about unbelieving Israel, specifically the leaders of Israel. 
In case this still isn't clear to you, even after you look at all those passages, what we're going to see, and this is why I didn't go back there, because we can see it going forward. We can see that what happens after what happens to the fig tree is a pretty clear picture of the message that Jesus is trying to get across to unbelieving Israel. And so we see now that Jesus moves from condemning that fig tree, now he's condemning the religious system. The Jewish religious system. And we see that start by what we looked at last week. To start with, Jesus cleanses the temple. He cleanses the temple and goes against the religious system that the leaders had set up to buy and to trade and to uh, use the temple for their own purposes instead of God's purposes. If you remember, we talked about that last week. I won't talk about it in detail again. Jesus reminds the people, if you remember at this time, that the temple is for worship of God for all the nations. That all the nations were called to come to this temple to pray to God, to worship God, and yet it had been turned into a den of robbers. It had been turned into a place of business and not a place of prayer. And Jesus makes it clear that this is not how it should be. To the point where he is flipping tables and stopping people, forcibly stopping people from going through the temple grounds. And I love how this was portrayed if you did go to sight and sound with us because Jesus didn't do it just as a a fit of rage. Jesus did this for a reason. Jesus did this out of a passion and a love for God and for his house. And Jesus does this to cleanse the temple. And we see again, if you remember last week we talked about it and here at the end of this passage, it says that the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The people were amazed, but the leaders were afraid. People were amazed at what Jesus did and what he said, but the leaders were afraid. And this is because he is taking a shot at the system that they have tried to put together and that so desperately want to keep because they want to keep their authority. They want to keep their wealth. They want to keep their, uh, their control over everything. So then we see is this idea of the religious system being condemned as we skip past the, the fig tree then as we've looked at that. Now we see in verse 27, we see this is the next day after Jesus cleanses the temple, but what we see is that Jesus is confronted in the temple. The next day, the Pharisees and the authorities, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? What are they talking about? They're talking about what happened the day before. They're saying to Jesus, what gives you the authority to come into our temple and to flip over our tables and to stop people from going through our, court, our courtyard? And they're saying, what authority do you have to do this? Now we know what authority that is. Jesus has come from God himself. And Jesus could have easily just said that. My authority comes from God. But he wanted to really... Dig it in, in a sense, and into the leaders here because he used a different strategy with them. And this was not uncommon for a rabbi to ask questions of, of people who, to respond with questions of questions that are asked. But Jesus says, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you about what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So far in the book of Mark, and we're going to see it even more as we go on, the religious authorities have been trying to trap Jesus. This is one instance in which we see Jesus flip the script. Jesus has actually put a test in front of them that they cannot pass. 
They cannot pass this test and he knows that that's going to cause issues. He knows it's going to upset them. He knows it's going to show the condemnation of the religious system. He's asked this question. They don't believe who Jesus is. Remember, they've said that he's come from Beelzebub before. They believe that he is from Satan. And so they ask this question trying to trap him and Jesus flips it around and we see that Jesus reveals his authority. Jesus reveals his authority in the temple. And he gives them this question and here's the thing. If they said, well, John was from God, what was John's message? Behold, the Lamb of God was coming to take away the sin of the world. John's message was to point to Jesus as the Messiah. So if they say, well, John was from God because he was a prophet, then they would have to actually be admitting that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. You know they're not going to do that. So their other option is to say, well, John was just from man. He was just doing his own thing. But the people of Israel understood that John was a prophet. And so if they were to say that, then all the people of Israel would be against them. There is, this is a no-win. This is a lose-lose So what do they do? They do the most cowardly thing you can do and they say, I don't know. And Jesus says, I'm not going to answer your question if you can't answer mine. But the strong implication here, we can't miss this, is very obvious. Because John was a prophet, because John did come from God and his message was that Jesus is the Messiah, that indeed the same authority that John had is the authority that Jesus has and that's from God himself. And that is the implication here. There's no way to miss that. And so we see that Jesus is now condemning and judging the religious system of Israel. And they are trying to trap him, and yet he is showing time and time again they are wrong. They are leading Israel in the wrong direction. And Jesus has shown through the symbol of the fig tree, and now the cleansing of the temple, that the Jewish establishment has turned away from true faith in God. And let's remember back to the fig tree. They may be looking good on the outside. They have leaves, but they are not bearing fruit. Jesus leaves no question of his condemnation of Israel and what he says next. As the fig tree withered, so will the influence of Israel. And that's where we go on as we get to chapter 12. Remember, Israel may have looked good on the outside. Their temple looked great. Their, their, their sacrificial system looked great. You, looking from the outside because they were so righteous and they kept the law so well and they even put a fence around the law and they had great traditions. They looked great. But Jesus, just like the fig tree had leaves but didn't have fruit, Israel has leaves but no fruit and he's showing that. And he continues to show that Israel has walked away and continues to show that the leadership of Israel is drawing, is, drawing them away from God himself as we enter chapter 12. Jesus condemns here the tenants. Jesus condemns the tenants. We already read this, so I'll just kind of paraphrase as we go. But we see Jesus tells a parable to the religious leaders. The religious leaders have just asked him a question. He didn't answer, but he kind of did. But he didn't really answer how they wanted him to. They, he, didn't, they, he wasn't trapped. So then he moves on, and they're still there, and he decides now is the time to give a parable. And what's going to be interesting... As we're going to see by the end of this, actually in verse 12, you read it. And it says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. We've looked at parables before, and most of the people didn't get it. They don't really understand the parable. The parable that Jesus tells right now, the religious leaders get. They understand that he is talking about the religious establishment in Israel. There is no question 
They understood it. We can understand it. And Jesus, no doubt, meant this parable for them. This parable, we see it's about a vineyard and the ungrateful tenants who, will kill the, who have beaten and sent away the owner's servants and even killed the owner's servants. So this was normal in Israel, that you could rent a vineyard and, and you would go in and you would, if you own the vineyard, you would rent it out to people. They would come in and kind of take care of the vineyard for you. But then at some point when it was time to get the grapes, you would come and you would send a servant to collect a, a portion of the grapes and they would be able to keep some, sure, because uh, from their work. But that's just normal, how you would do it. A lot of people who owned vineyards wouldn't necessarily uh, work on the vineyard, and so you would rent it out. And, and this was a common occurrence in Israel. So Jesus uses this common thing, and he says, look, uh, here's the story. An owner of a vineyard has tenants move in. He sends the servants to get the fruit that he is owed, and the servants go in, and they are beaten, they are sent out, they are hit in the head, and they are even murdered. Time and time again, servants have been sent to the vineyard and time and time again, the tenants keep beating and killing them. Jesus, or I'm sorry, God, or the, in this parable, before we get to the symbolism of it all, but in this parable, the owner of the vineyard uh, sends his own son to collect. Because he says, surely they won't do the same thing to my son that they've done to my servants. And the owner of the vineyard sends Jesus into the vineyard. Sorry, I keep... (laughs) Sends the son into the vineyard. And what do they do? Well, they reject and they kill the son. Why? Because they wanted the inheritance to be theirs. They wanted the vineyard to be theirs. Now, how does this show deeper meaning what is the point here it's not just a story once again jesus isn't just a storyteller there's a reason and we see at the end of this the the end of the parable the owner is displeased and what does the owner do he comes and he casts the tenants out he destroys the tenants and he brings in others to do the work that he would expect the tenant to do and we see this picture and now we have to to wrestle with it a little bit and see what jesus is trying to say this parable is a metaphor for the jewish people um, I will turn here because I think it's important. I want to go back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. In Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, we're going to see that this vineyard obviously is Israel. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a vine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? And I looked for it to yield grapes and it didn't, and it did, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. I shall, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that the no rain will rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, watch this, is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice and behold bloodshed, for righteousness but behold an outcry. 
Now, obviously, in the Old Testament, that was referring to even destruction that was coming through exile. But Jesus would know the Old Testament because, let's face it, it's his own word. He understands what was going on, and he uses the vineyard. It's very similar. It's very parallel to that passage in Isaiah. It's obvious that it's talking about the Jewish religious system. See, God had called Israel and set them apart to bless the world. God created, he called Abraham out of his land to come to Canaan to set up the Jewish people to be a light to the world. That was God's plan. That's what God wanted for them. He called them and set them apart to bless the whole world. Just like, just like we just read about the vineyard, to set up the vineyard to be perfect for what it needed to be. And he, he, he sets up the vineyard. He plants a vineyard as the owner does here. God planted Israel, if you will. And what do we see Israel do throughout history? They shunned, rejected, and killed the prophets of old who warned them of their sin and the coming Messiah. Time and time again, and you can look through the Old Testament and see prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet that would have been rejected, some cases beaten, and some cases killed because they were bringing a message that the people didn't like. To repent of sin to trust in God, to look for the Messiah. They wouldn't do any of that because they were so concerned with their false gods and concerned with themselves and concerned with their own nation. They weren't concerned with God's will. And so we've seen that throughout the Old Testament that the servants, or the, 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 the tenants, if you will, the Jewish people, specifically leadership of the Jewish people, has not, has been killing and rejecting the prophets that God has been sending them. And now we see also Jesus makes it very clear that these same, the same tenants of the vineyard, the same Jewish people would reject their own Messiah, the son that comes to collect, the son that comes from the owner of the vineyard that is there for them and yet they turn on him and they will, no doubt, it hasn't happened yet, but will kill him. And they have rejected the Messiah. They have rejected God's own son. And Jesus tells this parable on the heels of the fig tree and on the heels of what he did in the temple jesus tells this parable and it all makes sense because it all goes together and we see the truth of this then judgment for rejection the fact that they reject god's son the fact that they rejected the vineyard owner's son is destruction that is headed for israel yet again they've been exiled in the past their temple is going to be destroyed in just a few decades later. And there's going to be judgment upon Israel in that sense. But also we see that spiritually, God is going to hand over the responsibility of representing himself through the church. And Israel will lose the influence that God wanted them to have. Now I want to be very clear because some of you are already asking this question. Because some of you know that there is a lot of theology out there. One theology that would talk about replacement theology. That Israel has become Israel is no longer and the church has become Israel. I want to say beyond any shadow of a doubt that is not what I'm saying and that is not what I believe. I believe that the Bible is very clear that there are promises for the nation of Israel that will be fulfilled in the end of times. I believe that is true. But I also believe as I look at this passage and others that for the time being right now the influence that God wanted to have through, the, through Israel He wanted to bless the nations through Israel. He wanted Israel to be a light for him to represent God to the world. And I would say that because of their rejection now, 
the church, those who come to know Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles together are the representation of God on the earth. That we are representing God. That we are now given the influence that God wanted Israel to have because they rejected their Messiah. And as we follow Jesus, we will also be that influence that he has called us to be. And so Israel lost their opportunity for influence. They didn't lose all their promises, but they lost their opportunity for influence because they rejected the Messiah. Jesus even himself makes it very clear that what's happening has been foretold and this was going to happen and that Israel is indeed rejecting the Messiah by quoting from Psalm 118, 22, and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the cornerstone and yet who rejected it? The builders. The ones who are in the vineyard, the ones who are supposed to be building it up, they reject Jesus. They reject the cornerstone. And we see that Jesus indeed is going to condemn the lack of faith that the Jewish people would have. And here is the weirdest thing about this story, I think. After all of this, in verse 12, they understand that the parable is against them. They understand what Jesus is saying. You're about to reject the Messiah. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him. Jesus just told them, you are rejecting the Messiah and you're going to be destroyed. And what's their first reaction? Let's arrest him. Let's kill him. They're doing the exact same thing that he just told them they would. So what's the point of all of this? Why do we talk about Israel? Why do we talk about rejection? Why do we talk about Jesus and, and, and the, the lack of faith that is condemned? And, and why do we talk about all that? Well, here's the thing. We might not be Israel, right? We're not Israel. But we are in danger of acting in the same way that they did when it comes to of several of these things we've looked at. Some of us can look good and bear leaves but not really bear fruit. We might do all the right things and look really religious but we might not actually really trust Jesus and we might not really love one another and we might not really do things that would reflect our love for Christ. We might not really be forgiving. We might not really be loving the way we're called to. But yet we look good because we have leaves but we're not bearing fruit. We can still reject Jesus today by relying on ourselves or religion to make us acceptable. You know, we still can do that, just like Israel did. We can still reject Jesus and say, I'm going to rely on myself or I'm going to rely on my religion to give me the salvation and the hope and the, and the deliverance that I need, but it only comes through Jesus. Jesus has come to us. We must trust him completely and live our lives that bear the fruit of faith. That is the truth that we can see because just as much as Jesus is, go- is love and he saves those who come to him in faith, there is, there is, on the opposite side of that, those who don't have faith, those who reject him, are going to be destroyed. It's clear. There is a hell, there is an eternal separation from God forever for those who don't commit themselves and trust Jesus completely. And that is what our calling is. And so those are the questions that we need to end with are you rejecting the gospel in jesus himself are you here today and you've never come to know jesus as your savior all this talk 
Maybe you've been religious all your life. Maybe you've come to church. Maybe you do all the right things. Maybe you look really good, but you have not truly given your life to Christ in a way that bears fruit for his name. If that is you and you have not come to know Jesus, it it is very simple to see what God has provided, that we've all sinned and fall short of his glory, that we've walked away from him and tried to do our own thing. But Jesus, in just a few chapters, we're going to see what Jesus did to pay for that sin. To say, you don't have to spend forever in hell. You don't have to be separated from God forever because I'm going to die. I died on the cross, took all your punishment, took the sin that you have committed on myself so that I could bear the punishment that God expects and so that his wrath can be satisfied and so that my blood can forgive you of your sins. Don't reject me. Don't reject Jesus. Don't reject what he said. Come to him in faith. Trust him. It doesn't matter, by the way, how bad your life has been. You look at your life and you try to think, well, there's no way God could save me because I've done too many bad things. He can move a mountain and throw it into the sea. He can do the impossible. Trust him. Maybe you're saved today, but there's still ways that we can reject Jesus when we turn to go our own way and when we turn our back on him even now. And we need to make sure that we are truly trusting him and not rejecting his gospel and who he is. Which leads us to the second question. Are we truly bearing fruit or are we just bearing leaves? Think of yourselves as a fig tree. Are you, are you bearing fruit? And, and, and I'm not saying that we, all the fruit always looks the same, but I will say this, that there's fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, that whole list. It's all about love. It's all about uh, unity. It's all about uh, doing the work of God. That is what fruit is. He is doing the work. He gives fruit, but we have to be bearing fruit. We need to allow him to work through us. And so therefore, are we really bearing fruit in our lives or we just come and sit in a chair on Sunday mornings uh, and it looks good and, and maybe we even do extra things and we give to, to needs and, and everything looks good on the outside. We've got nice, beautiful leaves, but we're not really bearing fruit. Even Jesus, when he talks about prayer, says very simply, you can you know, pray for God's will, pray that he will do the impossible, but also live it out. Are you living it out? We need to ask that question because God cares. And finally, do we really trust in God's power in our lives? And I kind of alluded to that earlier. I'm not saying that every single thing that we want, we get. That is selfish. That is not prayer. But I am saying this, that God can and will do anything and everything, if, but we, <laughs> we need to trust that he can. Because a lot of us say it. Oh, God's got this. God's in control. Let go and let God. It's easy to say, but it's easy to truly believe. God can overcome anything in your life. Not that he always will, but he can. And you need to trust him that he knows what's best. Those are the things we can remember as we think about the fig tree and we think about the tenants and we think about the temple that Jesus cleansed. Have faith in Jesus and trust him completely. That is our call And that is our hope. You join me as we sing our final song.